This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today, we are in Alito, Texas, with David Barton, founder and president of Wall Builders, a pro-family national organization that presents America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on our moral and religious and constitutional heritage. So welcome back to the Trey Blocker Show. Hey, great to be with you again, Trey. Thanks. So we are, we are in the month of December, and, and on the show we have focused this month on religious liberties. There's a lot going on these days. We, we t- discussed the Masterpiece Cake case that's now at the U.S. Supreme Court. Oral arguments were heard in that case a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and so that's a, well, probably going to be a seminal case with regard to religious freedom and, and freedom of expression in this country. We also had State Representative Dwayne Bohack mm-hmm. on the show to talk about his Merry Christmas bill that he passed through the legislature a few sessions ago, and, and we talked about the importance of that. And so what I wanted to do with you today is, is talk about Christmas, uh, one of my favorite topics. And one of my favorites as well. I, I, I have not taken my Christmas tree down in years. So it stays up <laughs> around the clock. It, you know, it's too good a holiday just to celebrate one day a year. I, I couldn't agree more. So let's talk about the history of Christmas. I, you know, I think most people would probably surprise them that there's no biblical basis mm-hmm. for Christmas. The Bible doesn't give us a date when Jesus was born. And it also really doesn't talk about any celebrations of his birth after his life. So where did Christmas come from? Now, Christmas came um, a, a few centuries later as particularly as you look back in the third and fourth century as religious leaders went into the Holy Land and said, oh, that's where Jesus prayed in the garden. Mark that. We'll build a shrine there. And let's build one over here where he was killed. And let's build one where he's resurrected. And and so it's really three to four centuries later when the uh, church goes in and starts trying to preserve, if you will, landmarks. And and a lot of places that they marked as being shrines weren't the places that actually occurred. You know, <laughs> it was it was uh, the the mother-in-law kind of said, "Okay, let's put it there." Got it. Right. And, and so there is really no biblical record of a lot of it. Uh, it makes sense to commemorate a lot of the stuff we're told in First uh, Timothy, for example, that we're to remember Jesus Christ and. Christmas is a way of doing that if you do Christmas the right way. Now, right. If you make it commercial, you're not going to get that. Sure. But remembering Jesus Christ is a good thing, and we do that at Easter, and we did that at other times as well. Mm-hmm. And so the tone and intent can be good if the purpose is used well. Right. So a- as you mentioned, uh, Christmas first started being celebrated uh, through the Roman Catholic Church about 400 years after Christ, Mm -hmm. and they chose December 25th as the date to celebrate the birth of Christ. And let's be honest, they did it because they were trying to push out some pagan uh, winter celebrations, correct? Yeah, it was a replacement kind of of thing that was happening. We'll, We'll put our celebrations in instead of these. And it's interesting that even across the world today, it's not always... Uh, the 25th per se. I mean, there's other cultures. For example, as Americans, we tend to give gifts on the 25th, but a lot of your Latin cultures will not do that until January um, because they say, hey, gift giving was what happened when the wise men gave gifts, and that was a few weeks after Jesus was born, so they'll go into January the 6th thereabout, and that's when they exchange gifts. So there's really nothing set about the days. I mean, it was an arbitrary kind of a date back then. They researched it, thought they had something. But as far as the significance of the day, it's, it's 
it's the memory that you're after. The memory of That's what right. happened on that day is, is significant. And, and it's interesting that, that in America, we really, um, the, America was really different in the way it celebrated Christmas. If you're up north, there ain't gonna be Christmas celebration. It's just, it's not gonna happen. And the religious settlers that went north had been fleeing the persecution of the established church in Europe. Right. And the church that was persecuting them was celebrating Christmas in a big way, and they said, we want nothing to do with anything they did. Sure. And so as you get into, for example, Massachusetts, uh, in 1870, if you celebrated Christmas at school in Massachusetts, you're expelled from school right. in 1870. Right. Now, if you're in the southern states, it's a whole different thing. Um, George Washington celebrated Christmas at Mount Vernon, but that's higher church. When you get into what's called high church, and that's your, your Anglican, and that's your Episcopalian, your Catholic, fine, all over America they celebrated, but your low church, which was your Baptist and your Methodist and, and your Congregationalist, no Christmas celebration. Hmm. But it's interesting that you take, this is a speech from John Quincy Adams, uh, our sixth president. He, when he was eight years old, already had his musket with going with the Massachusetts men and men after the British. Right. So he's, he's a guy I witnessed all the stuff in the revolution. And this actually is a 4th of July oration that he gave when he was an old man. Uh, this is given, he was born in, 18, in 1768 and this is 1837. So he's up in his late 60s now. And it's interesting, he starts this out and he says, how come you asked me to address you? And he says, because I'm old enough to remember what happened. I'm one of the few guys that was sure. my witness. But in this 4th of July oration, he takes the right tone. He says, you know, he says, why is it that in America, the 4th of July and Christmas are our top two holidays? Now, this is in Massachusetts where they don't celebrate Christmas. So they don't celebrate Christmas, but he's in the Christmas. He says, because the birth of the Savior we celebrate that because that's when the principles of Christ came into the world. He said, now the 4th of July, we took the principles of Christ and brought them into American government. Right. He said, so in America, our top two holidays are Christmas and 4th of July because they celebrate the same thing. Now, we wouldn't think that today. We wouldn't sure. associate Christmas with the 4th of July, but they saw Christmas as a time where you celebrate the principles that Jesus Christ brought in the world, and they saw the declarations the time where you celebrated those principles brought into America. So for them, that was a really important day. But again, the celebration, the holiday, you know, all, all the festivities that we have with it, it's not going to happen. Now, if Christmas fell on a Sunday, all right, they're, they're going to talk about that because they're in church on Sunday. This, this actually happens to be a 1789 sermon uh, from up in the north that was actually preached on a Sunday because... Sunday was Christmas, so it's uh, Reverend Dr. Dana's sermon on the Nativity of Christ, and it's preached, and it just happened that that, that Sunday Christmas fell, but they're not right. going to go out of their way to celebrate And it. what's the date on this? This is, uh, it was delivered December the 25th, 1788, in the city of New Haven on the Lord's Day, and so that's, that's um, James Dana, famous pastor and writer, and so, and, and this, this again, this is New Haven, Connecticut. So that's that northern area where we really don't celebrate right. Christmas. But if it falls on a Sunday, yeah, we're going to talk about it. But if it falls on a Thursday, we're not going to have a Sunday before dedicated to Christmas on Thursday. And you better go to school. And you better go to school. That's <laughs> right. You, you, it, it's not till 1870 that Christmas became a federal holiday. Right. So it was late, late, late in. Now, Jesus Christ the center? Absolutely. 
Sure. Uh, but as a holiday set aside, the way they did in Europe, mm, we ain't Europe. We ain't doing that. So to be clear, it was the, the Puritan era that suppressed the celebration of a Christmas holiday. But if you were more associated with the Anglican Church or the Roman mm. Catholic Church, you were celebrating Christmas. That's right. Okay. As a matter of fact, George Washington had Christmas in the White House in 1795. Now, John Adams didn't. And, and nothing from, from John Adams or John Quincy Adams or, you know, any of those, those early guys that were from New England. No Christmas celebrations for them, but George Washington did because, again, he's high church. He's out of Virginia. He's an Anglican Episcopalian. Uh, John Adams is a Congregationalist, and we just don't do that. And, right. and, and so it's really even clear as who's in the White House is what we celebrate even nationally. And it's not because they didn't believe it was important to, to discuss or celebrate the birth of Christ. It, it was more a, 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 a them pushing back against the Roman Catholic Yeah, um, I mean, the guys in New England thought religion should be pure and simple. Right. And so what they saw in Europe was ostentatious and gaudy and, mm. and gold everywhere. And so, I mean, in New England, going to church, you wore subdued colors. It's like the Quakers and the Shakers, you know, it's grays and blacks, and you just didn't want to stand out. That's not, it's not about you, it's about right. Him. Sure. And so that was the attitude they had, whereas if you get in the South, their churches, man, there's golden glitter everywhere, and there's statues everywhere, and it's eye-catching when you come in, you know, go to Christ Church in Alexandria where George Washington went to church. Right. It's an impressive church. You go to a congregational church up north, and it's pretty simple. It's just a, a kind of a square box. There, there are some that you know fairly, fairly big, but they're just not ostentatious. And that was the. It, they're not opposed to the celebration of Christ. As a matter of fact, they insist on that Christ is central. But we're just not going to do it the gaudy way that they did it in Europe. Right. So it seems like Christmas made a huge comeback during the Victorian era, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Charles Dickens may have had something to do with that, mm -hmm. but Christmas carols became a big thing, Christmas cards became a big thing. Prince Albert uh, imported the Christmas tree, which was originally of German origin, mm -hmm. right, uh, and put it in Buckingham Palace, and, and, and I think that was the origin of everybody getting a Christmas tree. So it kind of took on this whole new sense of, hey, let's celebrate this and let's do it everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, and the first Christmas tree in the White House is 1889 with Benjamin Harrison. So right. that's pretty late in the game, you know, right. for the way we think. But that was the first uh, White House Christmas tree. The worst, the first White House Christmas lights were 1895 with Grover Cleveland. Uh, the first national Christmas tree is with Calvin Coolidge. And, and we did some Christmas things, you know, Christmas cards. Matter of fact, this is a Christmas card um, from 1864. Now, you can look at that. <laughs> you get, I mean, you can even give it a try to sure, read it if you want. Sure. But that little bitty thing right there, that is the Christmas That's card. That's the Christmas card. That's it. Wow. And if you, you look have at to have good eyes. It's the Lord's Prayer. And so this is what you gave. You gave the Lord's Prayer as a Christmas card. You know, right. and that's not what we, we think of. Now, on, on the other side, you've got Christmas cards. Uh, let's see. Let me pull this one out here. Now, Dwight Eisenhower, World War II. Uh, D-Day, all the stuff he did. He becomes president, elected in 1952, became, um, took the office in 1953. He was a noted artist. And so yeah. actually, he's the guy who got with Hallmark cards and said, let's create Christmas cards. Right. And so as president, during uh, there were 38 Hallmark Christmas cards that he used in the White House, but six of them he painted the covers to. Oh, wow. Uh, for example, this, this is a Hallmark Christmas card from the White House, but that's painted by Dwight Eisenhower. So that's, that's a card that he did. This one, a white 
white church in the country. This is a White House Christmas card painted by Dwight Eisenhower. That's amazing. But he also painted, these are Christmas cards too. And, and talking about larger Christmas cards, let me just see if I can pull so this So it out. went from very small oh, very to small. very big. See, this, this is a White House Christmas card. Wow. That's painted by Dwight Eisenhower, and so that's a White House Christmas card. That's great. And, and so, you know, it's, it's very different. Um, if you take, uh, you know, here's another White House Christmas card. This is painted by Dwight Eisenhower. He got the White House stamp on it. Mm -hmm. And so you, you've got these big ones that, that came with Dwight Eisenhower. Um, and Christmas cards really kind of went through some changes over the years. I mean, the, the first Christmas card to use a Bible verse in it was actually George W. Bush, and it was after 9-11. Wow. And this is the White House Christmas card that came out, signed George and Laura, and it's 2001. And so we're talking weeks after 9-11, and Laura cho chose the verse on it. It says, Thy face, Lord, do I seek. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 28, verse 8 and 13. And that's the first time a Bible verse first time a Bible was verse on a was White House Christmas card. Yes. Now, wow. the first time it had a Jesus message, was this card right here. That's a nativity scene, that one there. This Christmas card is 1963. It is signed on the inside by John F. Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy. Wow. And it was never sent. He managed to sign 30 of these before he got assassinated. Mm. So this is the first Christmas card in the White House to actually um, have the nativity scene, have a Jesus message on it. And it, it never got sent, so this is one of those rare 30 cards that's there. So that's, that's not a reproduction, that's oh, no, an original. That's, that's the original. That's, that's President original. Kennedy's yeah. signature on and, the card. And, and these, these are too. Now, it's, it's interesting. That didn't mean the other presidents weren't Jesus-centered, because many of them were. Uh, Harry Truman, for example. This is his Christmas card. That's the White House Christmas card in 1950, signed by Harry and Bess Truman. Oh, wow. It's a Jesus message. I mean, it's a real clear Jesus message. And if you look at, um, if you look particularly at actually FDR and Truman, we both consider them to be progressive, progressives and liberals. They're very Jesus-centered. Sure. Um, if you get into Ronald Reagan, extremely Jesus-centered. And then you get some God stuff with George W. Bush. But interestingly, Trump this year sounded like the Pope. I mean, he was... I, I heard the message. It, it was, was incredible. It was back to Ronald Reagan, and it was back to Truman and FDR. Right. It was a very Jesus-centered reason for the season type stuff. So this actually happens to be um, from 1950. This is President Truman's Christmas speech that he gave that year. And it's fun to go on YouTube and, and listen to Harry Truman Christmas messages because mm -hmm. they, they really do keep Christ in the season. Um, this is a strange Christmas card in the sense that that's World War II. Oh, wow. This is in the middle of the Battle of the Bulge. And it's, it's, it's got holly, it's got the green and red here, and it's got a Merry Christmas on it signed by George Patton. But the deal was we got in the Battle of the Bulge, and it was after D-Day, so we're pressing the Germans back in, which is all good stuff. But we've got 1,400 miles of front, the Allies do. They're pressing the Germans back. Right. And the Germans counterattacked at our weakest point, which is what you should do. But nobody thought they could because they went up high in the mountains, high in the Alps, and they, they attacked. They brought 1,800 tanks up. They brought 250,000 Germans up into the snow, into the highest part of the Alps. That happened to be the part that Patton was holding. 
and it would not have normally been a problem, except the weather was so bad we could not get American aircraft, Allied aircraft, off the ground to pound the tanks. Oh wow! And so they're they're starting to break through. They're pushing us back. We're bending. We're in serious trouble. And at that point, what happened was uh, General Patton called in General James O'Neill, who was the chief of chaplains, and he said, "O'Neill, you got a prayer for weather?" <laughs> he said, uh, "Let me check, sir. He checked the prayer books. Said, no, don't have one. I'll, I'll write one." Right. O'Neill said that Patton went over to the window, looked out the window, put his hands behind his back, and just stared out the window. And then talking over his shoulder, he said, Chaplain, do our soldiers pray? He said, certainly, sir. That's why we have chaplains. We have services. He said, no, no, no. Do our soldiers pray? Chaplain said, well, of course. There's no atheists in foxholes. We're in war. Everybody pray. No, do our soldiers. I want every single man in this army praying. And so what happened was... Chaplain O'Neill wrote out this prayer for weather. It's okay. a prayer for weather. It has a Christmas greeting on the other side from Patton. They gave this to all 250,000 soldiers in the Third Army. They started praying this weather prayer. Within two days, the weather broke, and they win, win the battle. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a World War II Christmas card with a prayer attached right. that really was a key point because had, had the Germans broken through at the Battle of the Bulge, if they'd won that, got on the backside of us, we got to reorganize and, you know, we're, we're in there another year or two. Right. Well, so and, and David, that reminds me, behind you is a painting of George Washington, who was maybe not so much to people of our era, but certainly in, in his time, known as a person who was constantly praying, mm -hmm. right? And, and that painting is a, is a picture of him praying at Valley Forge. And, yeah. and he was well known for he prayer was well in known the middle of prayer. battle. And it's interesting, if you go to New York City today, outside Federal Hall, George Washington kneeling in prayer in New York City, outside Federal Hall. If you go to Valley Forge, statue George Washington kneeling in prayer. Right. If you go to the U.S. Congress, go to the prayer chapel, the stained glass windows, George Washington kneeling in prayer. He was always known for that. And today, oh, no, he's a, he's a deist. He's an atheist. Man, he sure prayed a lot for a deist, atheist guy. <laughs> right. and, and actually, that, that painting behind us uh, is told because there's a little face looking out behind the tree, a guy named Isaac Potts. And Isaac Potts is, is historically, that's in the books what you find. He's the guy who told the story of seeing Washington pray because he's on the other side. Right. He's pro-British. And he saw Washington pray, and he went back and told his wife, when a man prays like that, his prayers are going to be answered. We're going to lose this thing. Oh, wow. So he was on the other side of it. So Washington was really well known for prayer. Um, it's interesting that even in his day, by the time you get to about 1830, the first set of Washington's writings came out in 1832, done by Jared Sparks, who was the president of Harvard, but he's also a chaplain of Congress. And at that point in time, they were saying, well, I don't know if Washington was really a Christian or not. And so what happened was Jared Sparks, as a good historian, he wrote the people who were still alive that had served with Washington said, tell me about his faith. And one of the people he wrote was Washington's daughter. Actually, it was his granddaughter, but he adopted her as a daughter after the parents died. And so she, she was raised 20 years with George at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. And she, and the question is, is George Washington really a Christian? And she wrote back and said, you might as well question his patriotism as question his Christianity. Right. And she went through all these things that he did concerning prayer. And she even relates that one time her aunt literally died at, at Mount Vernon, but George didn't know she was dead yet, but saw her laying there by the fireplace. She looked really sick, went over and laid hands on her and started praying for her, that, that God would, would heal her. Mm -hmm. And didn't even know she was dead yet, but his heart was always prayer, prayer, right. prayer, prayer. Right. And so that's what the eyewitnesses documented, which, as you point out, we don't get it in this generation. Well, mm -hmm. and so let's let's talk about that for a second, because you know we're talking about Christmas, 
and and we've seen kind of the the, the rise, the ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. And in in the past couple decades here in America, we've seen this effort to secularize, mm-hmm. commercialize Christmas, take Christ Christ out of Christmas, and we're seeing that everywhere. And we're seeing God and religion pushed out of the public mm-hmm. square. We have people on the left trying to argue that our founding fathers were not Christians. Mm-hmm. Where do you see this going from here? Uh, it, it, I, I've really kind of adopted three little motto kind of things. One of them is an older one, but I, I'm going back to it, and it's keep Christ in Christmas. Uh, you don't want to become secular. Santa Claus is fine as long as you keep Christ in Christmas. But when Christmas is about Santa Claus and no longer about the birth of Jesus, you got problems. Right. And so we're told in Romans 1 that when a people or a nation stops being God-conscious, their behavior changes. So one is you keep Christ in Christmas. Number two is you keep God in Thanksgiving. Because over recent years, we're now saying Thanksgiving is when the pilgrims said thank you to the Indians for teaching us how to live in this land. Right. Now, the, the, the PhDs at universities can't get their mind made up. They're either saying thank you to the Indians or the stuff we got this year and last year is uh, Thanksgiving was when the pilgrims cel- celebrated their genocide of the Indians. That's when they had a Thanksgiving for having killed all the Indians. Wow. So, whoa, wait a minute. The longest treaty in American history is between the pilgrims and the Wampanoags. No genocide. Right. But nonetheless, we're, we're shoving God out of Thanksgiving. And the third one is, and so I, I'm into keep Christ in Christmas, keep God in Thanksgiving, and keep truth in history. Because that's where we're suffering now. We get all these PhDs with all their opinions. Oh, yeah, Thanksgiving is about genocide. And so people start quoting them. Students start quoting them. They go, show me a single document on that. Well, I can show you several hundred that are on the opposite side of that. So what we're into now is we don't even look for truth anymore. We take what the latest craze is. You know, guys taking the, the knee in the end zone, NFL, on, on the flag. Right. Have no clue that there were five black Americans who won the Medal of Honor in the Civil War simply for not letting the flag touch the ground. Sure. And how many black congressmen in the Civil War that lived through slavery, that had been slaves, talk about how important the flag is. And so here are guys getting paid millions of dollars, and they're living a lifestyle that hundreds of thousands of people come gather in to watch them play a game, and the guys who actually went through the hard stuff respected the flag. Right. The, but see, the de- deal is every one of these... NFL players is recently out of college, and they're just doing what they were taught in college. That's not truth in history. I can show you 42 guys in the Civil War that were awarded the Medal of Honor for not letting the flag hit the ground. It was that big of a deal. If you respected the American flag at that level, you actually were awarded the Medal of Honor? Sure. Are you kidding? Right. Nobody knows that in history today. So those are the three things I'm into now, and, and so George Washington's a good example. Truth in history, we got all the written documents, we got all the handwritten, we got the eyewitness of, of you know, Isaac Potts who told the story. Right. So you've got truth in history, go with it. Well, so let me ask you this. What advice would you give to parents? And this, this episode we're going to air on Christmas Day oh, cool. uh, and, and promote it for, for a week or two after that. But as we sit here today, a, a handful of days before Christmas, I know as well as you do, there are parents running around to the mall right now, mm-hmm. all over town, trying to buy tons of stuff, you know, toys for the kids, gifts for the family. What would you say to them when, when their focus is on the stuff uh, instead of the reason? You just keep your priorities straight. Stuff's not bad unless you have a love for stuff above everything else. And so, you know, if you're seeing this on Christmas Day and you're giving Chris gifts tonight or if you gave them last night on Christmas Eve or you're watching this two weeks later, 
Here's the deal. Sit down and read the Christmas story. Read Luke 1, verses 1 through 20. Read the Christmas story. Do that before you open gifts. Now, if you've already opened gifts, sit down and read the Christmas story and say, this is why we open gifts. So you keep taking things back to fundamental principles. You keep going back. I mean, that's, that's the greatest players and, and the greatest pro athletes are the ones who keep going back to fundamentals. And, and so whether it's LeBron, he dribbles better, he shoots better, he passes, it's fundamentals. You know, whether it's Albert Pujols when he was MVP of, of baseball, he hit better, he threw better, he feel, it's the fundamentals. And you keep going back to fundamentals. So uh, you, on Christmas, fine, get the stuff, but just make sure your kids know that the reason we give the stuff is because of Jesus Christ and what he did coming to the earth. If you give the stuff and don't remind them of that, you say, look what Santa brought you. Right. No, that, that, that's not the way. And that's not even truth in history, quite frankly. So that's what I would recommend for parents. And, and parents, as you're getting kids now in school, and, and by the way, um, we've, we've just done a whole lot of research on statistical stuff that's happening in schools and universities. Bottom line is um, we're into indoctrination now more than education. For Correct. the first time in our history, our, our kids know less, but they're more opinionated than they've ever been with less facts. Right. Uh, we saw just a couple of weeks ago that, that kids in college right now uh, support fascism, communism, or socialism higher than they do free market. Now, the problem was not a single one of them could name any place in history socialism's ever worked, right. and none of them could even define socialism. But they've been taught that socialism is better than free market, that free market's a bad deal. That's indoctrination. That's not based on truth. There's no evidence. There's no statistical proof. There's no GDPs you can point to in any nation. I mean, it's just not there. So what happens now, both at the secondary level from elementary through high school and in college, it's much more about indoctrination. So you teach your kids to ask questions. What sources do you have to prove that? What, I, don't, I don't want 12 articles off the Huffington Post. Show, show me a source. Show me somebody who is an eyewitness to it that, that can tell me about it. Right. And, and so you train, uh, you train your kids that truth is more important than anything else. And wherever truth is, you, you accept truth. You, just, you accept it. That's the most important objective. But always ask questions. You know, Jesus asked 337 questions in the New Testament. People don't pay attention to all the questions he asked. But questions, asking questions is one of the best ways of getting to truth. So when a professor says, you know, the first Thanksgiving was about the genocide of, of the Indians. That's why the pilgrims gave thanks. What evidence do you have on that? Well, and by the way, we, we had, we had a, a girl, we do a leadership training thing for um, kids that are in college, 18 to 25, and we teach them to ask questions. And so one of these girls texted and said, you know, my, my prof just said, that the founding fathers were raging alcoholics. What do we do? <laughs> and, and so we said, well, don't be disrespectful. Go back to your teacher and say, man, I've never heard that. That's really cool. Right. Where can I find more information about that? Sure. And when she asked that question, the prof said, well, only place I've ever seen it is on the Huffington Post. Wow. And then the prof thinks, oh my gosh, did I just say what I heard myself <laughs> say? And the girl said, well, is there anything I can go to? She said, well, I did see a one-hour program on the History Channel that mentioned it, Amazing. and then suddenly the prof is all embarrassed because my two sources are a Huffington Post article and a history. Right. But see, asking the questions got that whole thing turned. And, and so that's one of the, the things I'd say for all parents. Teach your kids to ask questions. Teach your kids to ask where the truth comes from and show me documentation of that truth. If you can do that, It'll be a good Christmas, it'll be a good Thanksgiving, it'll be good history. Absolutely. And as we discussed last time you were on the show, it's exceedingly difficult to 
change that culture of indoctrination, whether it be at the public school level or at the university mm -hmm. level. So I think you're right. We have to teach our kids to think critically and ask tough questions. You know, one of the things that the Christian church got away from in the 1960s was the relational nature of Christianity. Jesus spent more time with his 12 disciples than he did with the thousands that followed him. But in the 60s, we got into mass evangelism, mass church, mega churches. And this generation is going to force us to go back to one-on-one -on -one relationships. You know, millennials aren't picked off as a group. You've got to pick them off one at a time and say, right. hey, let me, let me show you. Oh, I never knew that. They never told me that. That's right. So I can, and so what happens, you have to build a trust relationship, and then you have to show them how to find truth. And they want truth once they know what it is. They just didn't know what it was. They thought what their prophet told them was truth. Right. And so indoctrination, the way around that, and I, I really think the church is going to get healthy by having to go back to one-on-one -on -one relationships and actually discipling people and, and taking them, mentoring them, and say, here's, here's truth, here's stuff you can see. You know, right. This is tangible stuff. And, and so that is a solution, and I, that's how you deal with indoctrination, is you just you inoculate these kids one vaccination at a time, <laughs> just right. like we used to do from polio and smallpox sure. back in the day. You inoculate one kid at a time, right. and, and that's what it takes. So um, you've got some amazing original documents laid out before us, and, and I would like for you to quickly tell our audience, because I think we've added probably about fifteen or 20,000 new followers and listeners since cool. we last talked. So cool. tell them what you have available. If, they, if they're uh, thirsting for mm -hmm. resources, historical resources, you have a lot at wallbuilders.com. Tell them, tell them what they yeah, can Yeah, I, I mean, right here where we're sitting, we're surrounded with 120,000 items from before 1812. Right. So just about any topic you want to talk about from founding era, whether it be religious liberty or civil rights, or, or whether it be a judiciary or constitution, or any, anything, we, we've got the stuff. We try to put a lot of that on our website at wallbuilders.com. So a lot of that's downloadable, these, these Christmas sermons, these Christmas things we're talking about, cards, a lot of that's up on the website to be seen. Um, we also take, and as issues come up, we will create books or DVDs or other things. We have a YouTube channel with hundreds of short YouTubes of, of various artifacts and here and how they relate to what's going on in the culture, right. uh, like showing some of the, those black Civil War guys that were awarded the Medal of Honor for not kneeling, you know, for actually honoring the flag. We actually show them and talk about them and who they are. So there's YouTube channel, and then uh, on the store, we, we reprint lots of older things that are really cool. We just reprinted some original uh, proclamations from John Hancock, parchment stuff that we have the originals to right back in the corner. And then we've got books and, and DVDs as well that also have a lot of lessons in there so that if you want to teach this or want to learn it, there's a bunch of half-hour lessons you can get. Well, and last time I was up here, I acquired my own Founders oh, Bible, good. which you put together. Good. And, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer that you can never have too many Bibles. So I would encourage all of our listeners to go to wallbuilders.com and get one of these, because not only is it an incredible Bible, but it also contains a, a number of great articles about our founding fathers and their views on Christianity mm -hmm. and God and how that was the, the, the basis for the foundation of our country. Yeah, with all the documents we have, I, I've been really surprised as I read them how often they quote Bible verses. But in their day, they didn't have to tell you they were quoting the Bible because everybody studied it. Right. You know, today I would have to tell you I'm quoting the Bible because nobody knows it. But a great example is George Washington in a letter that he wrote in 1790 to the Hebrew congregation in Newport in two sentences quoted nine Bible verses. Mm -hmm. You go, wow, 
Well, that's the kind of stuff we have in the Founders Bible. We let the Founding Fathers do the commentary on the verses throughout the Bible because that's what they did in their writings. We right. got the writings. So it's kind of a fun way to, to go through the Bible is let the Founding Fathers talk about how that John Adams says Jeremiah 17, 9 is why we have constitutional separation of powers. Really? What is Jeremiah 17? And you let Adams tell you. And so it really is fun. That's why we call it the Founders Bible. The Bible is what they used to build so much of the good stuff here. And we just let them talk about how they used it. Well, we, tr we live in a blessed nation, and, and I hope we can keep it a blessed nation. Uh, you, you've got some great stuff in front of you. Do you have a short prayer or verse that we can close out the show with? Ooh, good question. Hey, you know, that's a great, great, great question. There's some really good stuff. Um, you know, I, I would say, if I was to choose something, I'd say the, the D-Day prayer. The D-Day prayer became a Christmas card for Eisenhower. And so that prayer for our country and for our troops and for our allies and for the people at home, that's a good prayer for, for any time of the year. And it was a six and a half minute prayer that, that uh, Roosevelt, I said Eisenhower, Roosevelt specifically delivered right. at D-Day. But that's on the website. People can actually watch the video of that. And it, it's a cool six and a half minute prayer. That'd be a good prayer for, for where we are. Awesome. David Barton, thank you for coming on the Trey Blocker Show. Thanks, Trey. And thank you all for listening again. And if you like what you heard, please go to YouTube and subscribe or to your favorite podcast app and go to TreyBlockerShow.com to show your support for our show. Thank you very much and Merry Christmas. This has been the Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.